Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's podcast. I am absolutely delighted to have a fascinating soldier scholar, as some people refer to him, Lieutenant General Sir Simon Mayle, KBE, CBE, QCVS, no less. Uh, Simon has a fascinating history and life, captured uh, along with his family in Soldier in the Sand, which is a, a great book. I'm thoroughly enjoying reading it. And if you love your history of that region, the Middle East and all that goes on, a number of the British wars that have gone on, have a read of that book. I thoroughly recommend it, Soldier in the Sand. Um, Simon's been to university three times, um, Balliol College, Oxford, when he read history. He was uh, also at St. Anthony and King's College. He uh, was a young officer in the 15th, 19th uh, King's Royal Azars, served in the Sultan of Oman's forces on the back of the book. You can see a handsome picture of him looking tanned with the, uh, the Tom Cruise shades. Uh, he was officer in the first Gulf War uh, in the liberation of Kuwait. He was uh, commanding officer of the Queen's Dragoon Guards, commanded the first mechanized brigade when he went into Kosovo for the liberation of Kosovo, um, and did a number of very senior tri-service roles, DCDS operations for those who are not in the military, a very senior role, but deputy commander um, in Baghdad. And um, towards the end of his career, uh, in the military, he was uh, the defense senior advisor for the Middle East and the prime minister's security envoy in Iraq. What a fascinating role. He was uh, deputy to uh, General the Lord Dannett, Richard Dannett, who we had on the program on episode 200, referred to as the lieutenant in the Tower of London, which sounds very sort of junior, but it, anything other than that. And a, and a lovely and very important historic ceremonial role. And he also was ADC to Baggy, General Sir Nigel Bagnall, who was uh, led the ginger group of some of the brightest brains in the army. And I remember when I worked for Field Marshal the Lord Inge, he, uh, we had Ginge and Inge, the two who were very respected leaders in the British military and, and what a great role model he had. Without further ado, Simon, it's great having you on the show. Thank you for being with us today. Let's go straight into inspiring leadership, the theme of the podcast. What, what does it mean to you and, and who for you has been inspiring and what kind of qualities have you seen? Well, I'm very fortunate, I say, my choice of parents. <laughs> um, always a good, good way to kick your life off. Uh, my father was in the, in the military, so I had very good exemplars when I was a youngster. Um, I, I think leaderships, I, I know many of your, your people who've got the privilege of uh, being on your podcast, is it, very much that, that consciousness of either inspiring you to do something you were, probably would like to have done anyway, but were too idle. <laughs> That's happened quite a lot. And certainly, you know, the old fashioned one, which is in, in, inspiring to do something you absolutely had no intention of doing or wanting to do. Um, and I think those that I've uh, picked up early on, were there was, there was very much a those that amuse you, interest you. Um, I think, again, you've had a debate about character and integrity uh, and, and, and the leaders who can really, it's follow me out of the trench, boys, and you just say, right, the hell with it. And those you know who are just so professionally competent that you just trust their judgment and you just admire them for the commitment they've put into becoming masters of their trade. Uh, and of course, the great ones are often those who can command both sides of it. And one thinks of Bill Slim, a historical. Um, but I was very fortunate to, to be with um, Nigel Bagnall, for instance. Uh, my first commanding officer was another one. Very, very, a man of great humanity, very professional. As a young officer, you felt mentored, you felt nurtured. Uh, with someone like Bagnall, you spotted he didn't have the, um, you know, the, the great flamboyant elan. Uh, but you just knew by watching other people's uh, attitude to him, he just dominated intellectually the room. You know, he just was the master of his brief. And then there were people I remember uh, with uh, somebody, again, might, might be well known to your uh, 
uh, to many of your listeners, are Harry Deal Payne. Mm. And Harry Deal Payne definitely fell into the great character, but <laughs> may have had other sides to his character. But I do remember him turning up at the 15th night of the King's Royal Hussars, and I was just a young subaltern, and the cry went up, you know, gentlemen, you know, the divisional commander, and we all sort of crashed to attention in the, in the gymnasium. And this chap came in, and he put his swagger stick on the, on the thing, took off his cap, and he said, right, gentlemen, I am Harry Deal Payne, your divisional commander. I cannot tell you how proud I am to have the 15th 19th, the King's Royal Hussars in my bloody hell. Every man, get those chest expanders out. <laughs> we were walking on air. And actually, he was a brilliant soldier, uh, but he did have one or two character flaws that eventually, sadly, brought him down before he'd, uh, he'd reached his, uh, his thing. So, you know, an, an, an exemplar, but different types of command inspired at different times, I think. Yeah, and, and you and I were talking before, and um, we, we talked about, as Richard did on the other podcast, that sometimes people have great character, but if they haven't got a, a compass, a true north that they keep to, they'll get off everywhere. We've obviously seen lots of that in the, the press with Boris and all that goes on, and, and different other strong men like Trump and things with their integrity is really the thing uh, that brings them down. What's your learning about just how important that is? I think it's, I think it's very important. I, I mean, I, it, it's easy to say it. There's professional integrity, and it goes back to professionalism, um, really. And again, I, you know, you can, listeners can translate it into their own arenas, but undoubtedly officers, leaders, doesn't need to be officers, anyone who carries rank, frankly. And not necessarily even that. I mean, it's very interesting how you know, we sort out leaders from those we identify who are going to have those qualities. But that professional integrity really important. The personal integrity does become increasingly important. Yeah. And yeah. that inability, particularly in the military, I think it's not, not remotely, um, maybe politics as well. You can't divorce your professional from your personal lives. No. And undoubtedly, I feel if you, if you morally lack integrity, it will begin, it inevitably must seep over into your professional integrity. Um, and the military is all about, of course, service to others, service to the nation on the way up, God, Queen, country, clearly service to the soldiers you're going to take into, into operations or just manage their careers or inspire them later. And I, I, I just feel there's a hollow, hollowness if a person doesn't have moral integrity, even where he's a very good commander in, in, you know, in many other uh, boxes being ticked. Yeah, and, and where we question their judgment, which is a real killer one. Um, What's interesting now is you've got a, a number of extra things. You, you're never bored. You're the chairman of the National Army Museum. Uh, you're also an advisor to Coots and Greenhill Company, um, who are a global investment bank, and also on the board of an oil company. And when you're working with these different organizations, you know, the National Army Museum looking after the, the, the history of the army and all that, all that goes on and its future, but the others where they're business organizations with a commercial bottom line, uh, how, how good are they at really taking in advice like the kind of things you're talking and your experience from the Are they hungry to learn and pick up the best from the military to go with the best of business? I think when they're exposed to it, uh, Jonathan, there's no, there's no guarantee you know, in this day and age that any of them will have had any contact necessarily with, with the military. Uh, a lot of them bring a stereotype about the military. A lot of them bring a stereotype about leadership in the military, uh, which uh, you, you and I know well, and anybody who knows the, the military well is, is very much about encouragement, mentoring. You know, the, the yelling at people is such a such a rare a rare thing. All people with a shared sense of purpose in an organisation that they trust that's going forward needs very little of that. Uh, as I say, the stereotypical shouting. Yeah. Um, Issues of motivating people through um, money—it's um, just a different, a different set of carrots and sticks. Mm. Um, an awful lot of uh, an awful high turnover I see in in banks. Um, I do enjoy Coots. I'm not here to give a plug for Coots. Coots, um, because I'm a historian by academic preference and training and an inclination. Um, I like because it it does wear its 330 year history. Um, I was going to say lightly, I actually mean the, the alternative. They, they really do a lot about trying to sell that corporate uh, integrity and the length of, and why the bank has survived so long in a manner that would be very recognisable to us in the military. You know, the, uh, uh, I'm a great believer in institutions and that idea of 
you commemorate, you celebrate, and you inspire. And I think that's what great institutions do. They take from the past. Uh, they absolutely make everybody in it now feel good about themselves. And they look to reinvigorate themselves by bringing the next generation on. I think, again, good organizations have that. They're not beholden to the past, but they know what bits inspire them. That keeps, it contributes to their moral, moral compass. I think it's a nice way of putting it. And, and that brings me nicely once again to, to your book, Soldier in the Sand, where it was fascinating that you combined the history of the family and how they'd got themselves, different members of your family, out to the Middle East, how they all met. But then you've got the different stages of the different wars and the different conflicts that you've been involved in and the studies that you've done. Looking at your life journey, I, I'm very interested in this metaphor of the, that our lives are a bit like a map that we get given by our parents. I'm going on a, an organization called the Hoffman Institute. It's a seven day immersion. And you look back at your childhood and what went on and that the parents give us these maps and, and they go, here you are, this is your sort of life map. But you, you start as you're going along, you add things to it a bit like in you know, 1100 when you were looking at the map of Africa, it was white most of it. It was no one had drawn any rivers or maps or roads and, and you've got to fill it in. You know, here you go, Simon, this is your map from us as parents. We'll, we'll give you our values, and but you don't have to follow them, but it served us well. Um, with the life journey that you've had, the experiences that have shaped you and those different conflicts that you've been involved in, what would you highlight in just perhaps 10 minutes or so from your life that people would listen to and go, that's really interesting. I could sort of add some of that richness to my own life map. What would you, what would you pick out from well learning from it? I love I love being in. I, I do like institutions. Um, uh, you know, I was lucky. I, I I was an eldest son. My father was a pilot in the air force. Um, was a great exemplar for me. Uh, and so, in some ways, um, I never went through the sort of teenage angst years. I very much wanted to follow my father into a profession that I saw he loved, had had huge professional satisfaction out of, uh, and I saw his peer group and the admiration they had for him, which again, you know, was, is re reinforcing and reaffirming. Um, I went to university, I studied history. History again gave me a real desire to be in an organization uh, that held history and the exemplars of history. Uh, and it's hard, defenders, you know, taking inspiration from, taking warnings from, and uh, as you know, in the book, my, my book's quite critical about, you know, our, our failure to understand history, therefore not failure to understand other people's history. Um, I was going to go to the Royal Air Force. I couldn't pat my head and rub my stomach. Uh, my father had, had a funny journey into the Air Force by going to Sandhurst. So he rather said, go to Sandhurst. Um, and early on, you know, I was surrounded by, uh, because I suppose it was that journey that I was temperamentally suited to something like the Army. I then found I was surrounded by people I, I admired, both people I looked up to, People I admired who are having their own life journey, you know, very soldiers, as we all know, from very um, broken backgrounds, chaotic things. So that sense of purpose early on, uh, service, um, and, and a peer group who I, I admired for their resilience, their flexibility, their great good humour. Uh, much of it, you know, moral and, and physical courage, excitement, and, 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 and those sort of things were just very fortunate to have. I didn't go through a great soul search. You know, I, I, I left the, I thought about leaving the army a couple of times and I'm very, very grateful that, it, that circumstances conspired against me because I, I, I found it got more and more interesting, even the, the dullest day in the Ministry of Defence. Uh, and I did several in my time. One still felt that sense of purpose. One still, still felt that the context you were operating within was of importance. You know, as it was, of course, on operations or commanding. Uh, I still felt I was surrounded by people, again, who were putting the job. Of course, they were ambitious, quite rightly, too. I was ambitious. Um, uh, I, I felt that, you know, people were, yes, given a left and right of art when it comes to moral compass. They knew types of behavior would just either expose themselves or the, the organization to reputational damage. And I think that's, that's helpful in life. Um, and then one did have it at certain times, the likes of Nigel Bagnall, the likes of General John Waters, you know, commanding officers who I admired, who'd sit you down, take the time to communicate, talk to you about their own journey, talk to you, you know, as a one for one as professional soldiers together. 
Um, and I just, I just was eternally grateful that I did my full 40, 40 years in the military. I never, ever regretted it. And I think I'd be lucky in that. Um, there are things you, you, you give up. I didn't ever get married. So um, most of my colleagues, of course, did. So they combined their professional satisfaction with, with families as well, even though I know um, that um, the military life does put a lot of pressure on, mm. on families. And a, a weak relationship, it'll find out. But a strong relationship, because it's obviously a good thing to do, yeah, it really, really binds binds people in. So it, it's great. So I, I've I've had a, an easy journey in many ways. I haven't had the thrash around, but it's one that suited my temperament and my background, and I've been eternally grateful for it. Well, it's been a fascinating uh, <clears throat> life thus far. There's still um, at sixty six. There's still a lot more life uh, to go, uh, with with much more to go if we can make it to the hundred year life. Um, I'm always interested with with all that wealth of experience you've had. Uh, from Kuwait to Morocco and all around the Middle East. Um, if you were to pick sort of three or four trends of uh, things you think are going to happen, you know, what's going to, you and I were talking about, you know, the inevitable wish of China to regain Taiwan, bring it back under its wing, under its fold, and that might lead to war. What might happen in the Middle East with Iran versus Saudi Arabia uh, in, the, in, the, in the power struggle there? You know, what, what do you think are a couple of big events that are going on? Obviously, one of them is what Russia will do as we think about the Ukraine war. What would you think, just, just in a nutshell, a few things you're expecting to happen in the next 10 years? Uh, sort of, I, I, I described there's three sort of images of the Middle East. Uh, one is the one that Edward Said in Orientalism really hated, which is Westerners um, responding to the romanticism and exoticism of the Middle East. The second one, of course, is the one that a lot of people who don't know the Middle East necessarily uh, also react to, which is uh, endless scenes of explosions, war, bombing, ISIS fighters. Uh, and the third one, of course, is, is the, the very human story of, of, of the Middle East and the culture and the empowerment of women and the move away from fossil fuels and the ambition and the aspiration uh, and the inspiration they, they, they draw from. It's, it's all there together. It's difficult not to be a bit gloomy um, because the, the breaks on reform remain very, very strong uh, because of the nature of culture and the continuing influence on religion. Um, the volatility between Persians, Arabs, and Turks, and you might say Egyptians, remains. The divisions between Sunni and Shia, the obvious ones, are there. The attraction to societies with young men disenfranchised, unemployed, looking for purpose, attracted to some of the more extreme ideologies of Al-Qaeda or Islamic State still remain. And then on top of that, of course, Jonathan, you, you have to put water stress, uh, you have to put perhaps um, some of the near-term consequences of potential famine. And we know how famine leads to social disorder, leads to political unrest. Uh, and then demographics. Um, you know, we're getting used to stories about declining populations here. Russia the same, China the same, uh, India overtaking. But in the Middle East, the, the median age is about 24. Mm. Uh, and that just tells you there's nothing you can do about it, that the population is going to double in the next 50 years. And so the scope with fractured states, with volatility, political violence, as I say, water stress, pressure on the land, too many people in the urban for either, either migration or social unrest, I think is, is, is large. And then of course you put in issues of nuclear prolifer proliferation uh, and always the possibility of an outbreak of, of violence that could be seen. So while it's a part of the world I love, and I hope that comes through in, in the book, uh, and I've, you know, I've been again grateful that my career not only took me to high rank and gave me a very, very interesting time, but a lot of it was to do with the, the Middle East, that of our necessity or, or inclination. It's quite difficult to be, not to be gloomy. And I think uh, this is where you need statesmen, leaders, to be looking at, at it you know, in the round. And I always, always used to say, you know, you can't, these are regional issues. And I, I used to say, and I never put it in, in my book, and people have heard me say it so often. If you want to understand this problem, you've got to get yourself a bigger map. Ah. And there's no doubt about it, you know, anything to do with the region 
and the continuing importance of energy supplies there, you've got to unfold the map all the way out to China, of course, clearly north into, you know, the what, what is, you know, Russia and the West at the moment, but actually has global implications. Uh, and of course, all the way to the east along the North African coast and across the Atlantic to what's happening with America. And as you, um, you know, as we discussed earlier, you know, America's place in the world. Yeah. Oh. Um, Fascinatingly put, and I will take that one away, particularly as I, you and I were discussing the metaphor of you know, personalizing your map. And I think that's a lovely adage to it, is um, get a bigger map, unfold it. You know, you're, you're looking at a very small part of your life. What, what is it like in comparison to everybody else around you and what's going on? Are you, are you seeing the bigger picture? And I think when I look on some of the CEOs and the leaders I'm lucky enough to, to coach, they they sometimes have too small a map with it really folded very neatly. I remember when we did the escape, escape and evasion exercise when I was in the electronic warfare regiment with the signals. And, and when people were captured by the force uh, in their escape and evasion, if they'd been so stupid as to fold their map down to a small area, they, even though they weren't ever marking the map, there was grubby lines around where it had been folded. And so they need just to put together four of these maps and they knew exactly where the agent was going to be because of the overlap of the folds. And they just knew somewhere in there was the agent and we're going to capture him. And they did, uh, which was very clever of them. Well, um, I was, if I may, John, just because when I was in Iraq and even back in the Ministry of Defence and we were dealing with Iraq, the map would go up. And the Iraq was coloured in, and everything around it was in white. Oh no! As if what was going on in Turkey, Iran, and Syria, and Saudi Arabia had no influence on the, on the campaign we were trying to fight within uh, within Iraq itself. And you know, the wow. Euphrates Valley, of course, went straight up through Syria, and that's where all these jihadists were coming down the Euphrates Valley. And you just thought, no, we've got to know what's going on in Damascus and Tehran. We've got to know what Erdogan's thinking in, uh, in, in Ankara. We've really got to know what the king of, of Saudi Arabia is doing. All these people are critical to our so, mission. So anyway. true. No, I think, I think that's a really brilliant point. And, and we were saying how, again, with this analogy of maps, that, you know, your parents give you a map of Africa in the 1100s, which is all just the outline of it. And it's white inside it. No one knows what's going on there. But like in those those days when we had the AA roadmap and, and you were traveling back from Germany and you were passing through Holland and you went through, I don't know, Antwerp or somewhere and it was just white. And you went, oh no, where's the bigger map for this? And you had to find it on another page. Otherwise you were suddenly into this big box of white, which was a city you didn't know what was there. No, I love that. I love that story, but get a bigger map, unfold it. Very true. Very. Um, thinking about your own life and this is fascinating book. Um, if you were to pick just one in each case of, of a really happiest moment, proudest moment in your life and a darkest moment, and as Rudyard Kipling said, treat those two imposters just the same. What did you learn from your happiest, proudest moment? What did you learn from your darkest personal moment? Well, I think, you know, among many, I, I, I say I was, I was fortunate enough, you know, round peg, round hole. Huge admiration for those who, who strike out and fill in that, that blank map you're talking about, Jonathan. You know, I went on to a map that was quite well populated because it was the army and regiments, et cetera. So it, it's a personal journey. Um, I, did love, I did love going to Oman, uh, although, you know, things like commanding the Queen's Dragoon Guards, commanding my brigade uh, were fantastic, huge privilege. Going to Oman just was such coalescence of so many things that I suppose appealed to my temperament. You know, it was exotic. It was, you know, capital R romantic. I was only 29. I was an acting major. I had more money in my pocket than any other time. I was, you know, wearing a shamar, the Tom Cruise, whatever. I was commanding at a young age. I was commanding Arabs in another language. I was immersed in a culture that I felt deeply comfortable in. And that three years defined it. I did, I did more demanding soldiering. I did uh, more worthwhile, whatever, but it, it was at a time and place in, in one's life. Mm. Uh, at the end of my career, I have to say, and it's in the book, and it, it, didn't, it, it didn't have those sort of elements so much, but I'm very, very proud of having got the first permanent British military base east of Suez since 1971 with the base in Bahrain. Bahrain, yeah. And I was very proud when the Navy very handsomely unveiled Mail Square, 
<laughs> yeah. So I'm not sure you find all that. So, you know, I, I've, I've had the spectrum of professional satisfactions uh, from the military. Um, a, a dark time, undoubtedly, was, was when I got a letter saying I wasn't going to command the regiment I joined. Mm. Uh, again, I'm not remotely putting that in the same pot as people who've had personal tragedies. I've been spared those. Um, but at a professional and personal level, it was, it was a kick. Um, because, as you well know, you want to command your regiment, or you certainly want to command a regiment. And I really did feel at that stage I was probably going to leave the army. Uh, and equally, I was very conscious that some of the reasons I wasn't going to command was um, probably a justifiable criticism of um, the way I'd played a bit fast and loose, I suppose, with my own career up till then. That one had, you know, been, you know, there'd been elements of, you know, selfishness. I'm not, I'm sure, alone in this, but one's got to acknowledge it. Um, and it did hold up a mirror to me. Um, yes, the prof professional disappointment but also a personal wake-up call that one was confronted with people who were prepared to acknowledge that you had a number of talents that the army could well do without, but that regiment had decided, no, we, we don't think you're, you, you, you're, you're, the, you're the full deal yet. Who, who did command it? Uh, of... I wouldn't, I wouldn't <laughs> <laughs> And he commanded it jolly well. Uh, okay. <laughs> and uh, and for well, what, how did you get you got your second chance because you commanded another right. regiment, another very good regiment, the Queen's Dragoon Guards. How did that come about, and what stopped you from leaving? And I, well, I went to see I went to see uh, John Waters, uh, and I showed him the letter, and I was very fortunate. I'd known John Waters from the time I'd known Baggy Bagnall, and luckily, I'm sure he could see all my weaknesses. Um, you know, he was one of those flash, glib cavalrymen. Probably pretty good when he's put under pressure a bit, but, you know, if he's not really interested. I had that on Bagnell's, Bagnell's report on it. He said he could go a long way in the army, but totally depends if he's prepared to put the... Yeah, he, could, he, could, he could drift off. And, and so, I, 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 luckily, I, I, I had allies. And there's no doubt about it, I would say, Jonathan, I was a much better commanding officer of the Queen's Dragoon Guards, a fantastic regiment, as you well know. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm fiercely loyal to them. I'm a better commanding officer than I would have been if I'd got, inverted commas, as a right uh, to command what was then the Light Dragoons. I would have yeah. gone in with a sense of entitlement, a sense of my own self-importance, and I was a better commander. I was a better leader for my soldiers and subordinates. I was a better guardian of the great institution of the Queen's Dream Guards and, and later on uh, for, that, for that disappointment. And I say, I'm not gonna put it in the balance against people who've had you know, real, real personal tragedies, but it was a, you know, having had a fairly easy, easy life, drifting up, you know, educationally, family, uh, it, was, it, was a wake, it was a wake up call. And that's a really good point. So the lesson for those listening, you, you won't get what you want. Life doesn't always deal at you in a plate. But actually, when one door closes, another one opens, which gave you a completely different career to the one you would have had. Um, so, so there's fascinating lessons from that, which takes us on to lessons you'd give. And the to other one, sorry, John, just there is 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 how you handle disappointment. Yes, and yes. that absolutely. And, and I was absolutely you know, again. One, one has a fairly optimistic nature. I think I put it in the book. You know, crisis, danger, and opportunity. Uh, the Chinese biogram and. Again, not this. This is not putting that against personal tragedy, but how you deal with disappointment always impresses other people, or or people notice it. And yeah. you just got to say, I'm partly the architect of my own disappointment. Yes, and I'm going to learn. From, I've got to make that a learning experience as far as I can. Uh, and that's very good. And for those who listen, and and uh, it's a well-known phrase, but it might um, be new to some. That if I'm right in playing that back to you, that the Chinese symbols for crisis are two symbols, danger plus opportunity. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. And That's so correct. That when you have a crisis in it, there is great danger for you, but there's also great opportunity if you're prepared to, to, um, to, to seek it. And thinking about advice you'd give to others listening, uh, advice to young men now aged 16 to 18, if you went back and met the Simon Mail uh, in that early stage in your life before you went to... Uh, to Balliol College and uh, joined the army. 
what what would you say don't do this but do do that what what bit of a couple of bits of advice would you give to your young man now well i i would certainly actively encourage anybody who's remotest uh inclination to join the armed forces to to do it mm. um i met a lot of people and i'm sure you have jonathan who at about the age of 40 very successful in their own fields say i wish i i wish i'd gone into done time in the army yeah because i really do think whether you do three, five, 40 years, the experiences, the life skills, the opportunities, the privileges and responsibilities you will get, the friends uh, that I think almost anybody in the army always talks about, the quality of their friendships. Um, you know, and I always say, to people, don't miss it. You, you'll live longer, you'll have to work hard, you'll have to work longer probably. And any number of people, and you, you know, you're a shining example, can do time in the army and then go into something else. But what you can't ever do is turn the clock back to that youngish man or woman and do the time in the army. And I, I don't think I'd ever known anybody except somebody maybe who got the wrong moral compass, mm. who's ever regretted, never left the army because they didn't like it. Mm. They left for all sorts of other very good reasons. Mm. But I have yet to meet somebody who said, I completely wasted my time going into the army. No, you're, you're so um, right. And, and just stay with that for a moment. Looking back, I think... I count the blessings of being so different from my peers in my own profession, working with boards and top teams, in that that military experience gave me a differentiator, gave me insights from my mistakes, as well as some of the successes I had, but, but also very fine leaders mm. that I, I worked with, who I will always remember if they were here. And particularly, you know, Richard was commanding officer to me when I was his one of his very young acting major company commanders. But, but I still think, when I say to some of these CEOs, if Richard Dannett was here now, he wouldn't say very much. He'd listen a lot. And then he'd just capture in a summary, in a sentence or two, exactly what needs to be done. And people go, wow, yeah, that's it. And, and, and people like that, you never forget, or Bagnall, do you? You just don't forget those. No. And they mark you. And these are people who are considerably older than you. Mm. Not, not but, but Richard was going off, so actually, no, but Bagnall, it was very interesting. I was, whatever, 23, 24, uh, and he was, you know, at the height of his powers, 50. But the, you know, as, as, as I got older, the more interest you take in your subordinates. Mm. It's funny because you, you see your own time coming to an end, you see that, and you see the next generation. And I think your loyalty to your institution, be it the Regiment of the Army, wants, wants you to invest in these great young men and women in the hope of in the hope you can persuade them to stay. I mean, you can't persuade them all to stay, of course you can't. Um, but the idea that you can still capture some people, you can still influence people to see in the institution what you have given to it. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and join, you know, what called the long gray line, I think as they call it at, at, at West Point, you know, pick up the bat and carry it on, look after the next generation of your soldiers, take that huge pleasure and privilege. And again, it's not, as we say, unique to the military but it's so front and foremost in the military because if you're a junior in any other organization, you're a junior, you've got seniors there and you learn your trade and you're, you're professional. But I think as Richard said on his thing, you know, with this left Sanders, 27 green Howards on the streets of the yeah. You are responsible, you don't care how old you are, you're carrying the rank. Yeah. You have that response, you have command authority and you have that responsibility. Well, it's a, it's a very small world that the two of you happen to be together, to serve together and then be together at the Tower, because, of course, he explained to me that uh, Nigel Bagnall began as a Green Howard. Yes. And, 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 and he went to see his commanding officer as a young officer and said, sir, I want to go to Staff College, to which the rather casual, relaxed Green Howard went, Staff College? Green Howard's don't go to Staff College, old boy. So uh, no, this is not the kind of serious uh, uh, part of the army. They're taking it seriously. So he transferred into his regiment of the cavalry, uh, which I thought was a lovely story. But um, thinking about you and all those experiences you've had in life, if there was one crucible moment in all the different things you've done that shaped you so much in your career, and, and there's maybe a lesson for people listening, what would that crucible moment be? I think it was, I think it was being, it, it, funny enough, it was the disappointment, the crucible moment for me in, in I, I just knew I wanted to be a soldier. And so I almost left when I came back from Oman because I was, you know, I was at that age. It's time, time to go on. 
the disappointment, as I say, in turning that disappointment of failure round. And again, I don't want to you know, overstate because, as I say, I haven't suffered personal tragedies as such. Um, and then that realization that I, I really, really valued the purpose and everything about the military. That I really didn't want to leave, that I would dying to be given, as it were, a second chance to be back in the game. Yeah. Um, but I think it was really good to find affirmed uh, for oneself that you were in an organisation with a sense of purpose you completely subscribed to. Yeah. So I think there was a disappointment. There was a good kicking, which I think was would be useful in any, you know, for any cocky chap who's you know getting getting above himself. Um, I think it was very nice to be confirmed um, that you genuinely, it was not hardly Saul on the road to Damascus, um, but it was, it, was, it was good to feel what was there was something at purpose and wanted to continue, continue to contribute. Yeah, and it is interesting, you know, now, now you're advising businesses. Um, when I look at some of the good leaders I meet in business, they learn almost by accident rather than a, a career plan for them where they go away on courses and that they're developed and someone talks about their career and what they should be doing, uh, discuss with them what, what could options they could do next and, and how we're going to develop you. I mean, they must have invested, I don't know, quarter of a million pounds developing you over all these courses mm -hmm. you've done and RCDS and, and lots of senior courses and staff college. And, and, and yet, sadly, they put someone into a CEO role. And they go, on you go. You know, no preparation, no training, no development. And if they spend, um, I don't know, £20,000 over someone's career, they think that's generous. What, yeah. what's, what's your lesson for, for business leaders? What can they do to make more of developing I mean, their own leaders? I do. I mean, I do understand it. I mean, the thing in the army, of course, you are looking at it in the context of 40-year contribution to an institution, if you go the whole way. Um, and and that, that is great. I, 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 I do get... Uh, why civilian firms won't do it. They'd rather somebody else took up the, the time and the, and the money of training somebody. And they'll go out, obviously, through headhunters to find somebody who they think has had that investment who might be good for them. But I think there's no doubt about it. Um, it's difficult if you are doing lateral transfers the whole time um, to build up the, the, the ethos of, of, of loyalty. That's where it is interesting that some great firms... I think of Procter and Gamble, for instance. You know, almost everybody, as far as I understand, I know if you will, who's at the top of Procter and Gamble has come up from the bottom because they have an obviously have an ethos, a cultural business ethos that tries to get good people in and then incentivize, incentivize them, incentivizes them precisely. I think with that, in, in, with that investment in obviously monetary re reward, but remuneration. Uh, but uh, but a, a career path. Uh, I think a lot of other companies and uh, don't do that. And I think they leave themselves open to reputational risk because you know we are or, you know in the army in a regiment. You know you, you can spot the person who is playing fast and loose with the, with the reputation of that regiment. Back to moral compass. Yeah, which which takes me nice to get that in a civilian organisation. And, and why should you expect unless you're a particular type of organization? Exactly, which that, that moral compass takes me on nicely to let's go around the inspiring leadership compass with the eight components and just quick fire questions and your sort of top tips for people. MQ is the first one, the true north, the top. Um, uh, you've talked a lot about your values and your upbringing. When you've come off True North, uh, for whatever reason, what have you done to bring yourself back on? How can, when people have drifted from what they know to be the right thing, how do you get yourself back on again? And how do you make up for the fact that you've slipped? It may not be you personally, but others have. What, what would be your well, advice? I, I always remember the rather, rather interesting one. I, somebody claimed it was from Romania. And it, it, the great cry was, where there's shame, there's still hope. Oh, right. Uh, and I thought it's good. It's not... <laughs> Whether, whether having a sense of shame is, is, is good, but I do think if you do have a moral compass, we all hope we do have it. <clears throat> We're normally pretty aware when we stepped off it. And I do think the esteem of people you esteem is, really, is a really important corrective. Uh, and I think we said it earlier or before we started uh, formally chatting, you know, it is 
you know, you, one does like to go through life being affirmed by the good, you know, the good opinion of people you admire. Yeah. And I think the army and just, you know, there, there are, there is God, there is a God, queen and country. There is the regiment, dear boy, the regiment type thing. There is disappointing your mentors, disappointing your peer group. And, you know, I, I have seen officers behave dishonestly. Mm. And I did remember talking to my subaltern at one stage over the dreaded thing, motor mileage allowance, Jonathan, which you may remember, mm -hmm. which in a sense is open to abuse. All expenses are open to abuse. Uh, and I just said, A, it's absolutely wrong anyway, but temptation does come along. But I said, you as officers in the Queen's Dragoon Guards, when the Lance Corporal in the RMP is asking you to justify the fact that you didn't really go to Inverness, or dare I say, we've seen a high profile case of boarding school allowance, another one which lead me not into temptation. Mm. And you're explaining to your parents why you have forfeited your commission in the Queen's Dragoon Guards, Her Majesty's Armed Forces, for the sake of a pitiful amount of money. Yeah. And I said, you just, anything you can use, and I write about it in the book, that, that keeps that moral compass, given we're all human, and there are temptations either to be idle or to be whatever, or to just slack, you know, not take our responsibilities. I think is what is such a great aspect of, of military service. Yeah, and, and this reminds me of, a, of an incident when I was with, serving with the Scots Guards and doing the mountain marathon. There was a moment when myself and the, the Scots Guards sergeant and the, a piper, uh, we were near the summit on day one and we were likely to win, but we were so tired and they wanted me to stop and sit down. And it was so easy to collude and go with them. And I was tired too. And I sort of, my courage was at a low ebb. I was exhausted. We'd been running for four hours. And I thought, yes, I'll sit down. And then I thought, no, this is the moment. No one will see you, but you know that you're on a mountainside alone with these two soldiers, but they know if you've chickened out or whether you have the courage to keep going and win. Yeah. And so I, I had a conversation with my, my late father, you know, up on a cloud sitting there saying, Jonathan, you know, Commit or collude, your choice. You yeah. know, you'll know. And, and, and you said there, don't slack. That's the moment when you shouldn't. But no one else will know, but you know. And you've got to look yourself the man in the mirror, haven't you? And you've got to it, face yourself. You and if you have command responsibility, Jonathan, and other people are, going to, are looking to you to set that example, that, again, is really useful. And, and the, the cry we've often had, you've probably heard it before, we, we hope and expect and assume even that our people will do the right thing on a bad day, even when no one's watching. Oh, yeah. And I've always found that, and you've tried to say to your soldiers, you know, you wear the cat badge, you're members of Her Majesty's Armed Forces. I really want to think that you will do that right thing on that bad day when nobody's watching. Yeah. And you begin to identify those that can. And it's particularly if you, if, as you say, you've got the, the privilege and responsibility of rank, because you've got to, you've just got, that's why you're an officer. Yeah. And, it, and, and it helps. It helps hugely, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. And, and you sort of know when you're you're wilting or you're lacking the courage to tackle something which is not acceptable. But it's so easy to go with the crowd and collude. But but doing the right thing is always the hardest thing. It needs to force yeah. through, which takes us on to purpose. The, the next one, Simon, you know, that sense of meaning and purpose, your calling, your vocation. I've heard it from you very clearly and in your book, service, uh, duty. Uh, the regiment. But but in the work you're doing now, I suppose the National Army Museum is a continuation of the Army story, but in the other advisory work, what, what gives you a sense of purpose in what you're doing now at, at this stage of your life, age 66? Yeah, I, I suppose interest. Mm -hmm. um, it's nice to work at a, a high level. It's nice to work because one did 40 years in, in public service. Uh, it's interesting to work with consummate professionals in a different sphere. Um, it's interesting to observe it. Um, I like what I do as a portfolio because I quite like the freedom, you know, to, to, to travel, which I continue to do. I like continue to lecture on largely the Middle East, but, um, you know, a number of the, the things covered in the book. Um, so I, I like I like that. I like that flexibility within it. Mm -hmm. um, quite like getting paid. Uh, let's not, <laughs> you know, I can't <laughs> cast out there. Mm -hmm. um and um and it keeps me uh, yeah it keeps me just interested and it um 
it allows you to meet people. And I normally do. I normally work with people who are broadly have a focus in the Middle East. Yeah. So it's yeah. another way that continues to get me traveling, traveling out to a part of the world I feel very comfortable in and, and really enjoy. Yeah. And talk about traveling. I understand that you were with uh, David Rutherford Jones or somebody else. Maybe it was not him walking 75 miles in the Pyrenees. This is next takes me on to health, your health and well-being, your mental health, your physical health. What do you do to keep it going? Because we want to have our health span match our lifespan, particularly you and I are in our 60s. So, so <clears throat> what tip would you give to those at any stage of their life, but certainly uh, as we get older, to keep your mental and physical health? What would be your top tip? I think it's very difficult to enjoy anything else in life if you're not healthy. Mm. Really, really difficult. That's one gets older. Uh, one's grateful for having been in a profession that almost made it a duty to keep yourself healthy. Um, I think it really, is, it really is important that, you know, I know people talk about it a lot, that sort of, you know, mindfulness and, and the like. I, I do think being physically healthy keeps you very mentally healthy as well. There's no doubt about it. I'm absolutely good. It clears the mind. If it's a big walking trip, as I did with David Rutherford-Jones and the Pyrenees, it gives you plenty of time to think clear your mind it's amazing you know what pops in, in and out what stupid how you stupid uh, you know anecdotes you know you you you, rem you remember uh, i love reading um i'm i'm always been grateful that i'm not intimidated by large picking up a large book um i feel very very angry about the failures of our educational system that deprive so many young men and women from do I say, you know, this, this, this is a challenge, the bookshelf, as opposed to a window uh, onto the world. I, I do think keeping interested. I do like travel because I do think you keep meeting interesting people. We're very fortunate, the level that we operate at, uh, that we're always exposed to interesting people. But mm -hmm. as I get older, I do continue to think, my goodness, I would not be enjoying this as much if I was, um, if I was unwell or suffering some chronic disease. Yeah, it's very true. I do ask also, if I may, Jonathan, I went to another great mate called Richard Banfield. We went, we were running around the park. He'd actually just got divorced, and I was in pursuit of somebody else. And I said, "You know why we're, you know why we're doing this, Richard?" He said, "Yes, absolutely right. We've got to keep fit. It's very good." I said, "No, no, vanity." <laughs> it is, I'm afraid. Yeah. fat generals. <laughs> yeah, is that, nothing worse than a fat general. Um, it, it reminds me of uh, that that book, The Psychology of Incompetence, wasn't it? Or something about yeah, military incompetence. Yeah, Dixon, Dixon. Yeah, yeah, Dixon, on the psychology of military incompetence, that was it. Um, on the, uh, the skills that you've been able to use uh, as an advisor and traveling in all these different countries, one of the great skills is emotional and social intelligence, meeting people, reading them, understanding your own emotions and managing, understanding others, and reading the reality of what's going on in the world and folding the map out yes, yeah, up, yeah. up the Baghdad Valley, uh, up the, no, um, the, um, it is. Yeah, the river. <laughs> um, um, so what is a top tip you'd give about listening, rapport, you know, reading other people yes i the, the middle east is a classic case jonathan and you'll you'll know it. i think it comes out in the book um we go out there talking about cultural awareness and we do we invested in a lot more than we used to still bad i used to stand up in front of you know fairly juniors and say i'm i'm general simon male um uh, middle east advisor i'm i'm the best arabic speaker in the army you can tell you can tell them all go who's this whatever and then i say the point I'm making is that's an indictment, not a boast. Yeah. I am hosting on three months at Beaconsfield when I went on loan service in 1985. And I said, that's the point I like to make. It's a disgusting, I said, that I should be the Middle East advisor and no one's invested more than three months in my Arabic. Um, and so I really think, you know, the British Army with its global aspirations, Britain with its global aspirations, this issue of language, culture, history, so important. I think so many of the failures uh, in Iraq and you could say of Afghanistan uh, what, what was a failure of, of understanding context. I'm not saying at the tactical level, but at the strategic level, certainly. Uh, our misreading of the Arab Spring, our misreading all the way back to Shah of Iran. Mm -hmm. um, I was talking to West Point uh, audience the other day, and they were talking about the utility of cultural awareness. And I said, our problem is we get the don't point your feet, drink the cup with your right hand, you know, all this sort of stuff. But our problem is that that's fine at the, tactical, at the strategic level. 
we demonstrate we actually don't like the culture of these countries. Mm-hmm. And actually, it's a strategic level you're going to win wars. We can win campaigns, battles, tactical engagements. And, and, that, and that's our problem. We have sucked our own Kool-Aid about the, you know, the wonderfulness of Western civilization. Uh, and we go with an arrogance and insouciance, uh, a contempt in, in some cases that, that is deeply unhelpful to our cause. So yeah. one brings a bit of that. I'm not, again, macro to micro. One brings a bit of that to advising, you know, the companies that go there. And I'm, I'm not, you know, it's kind of industry in this, but quite a lot of the advantage that I think Coots and Greenhill find in me is one goes in to talk about Britain's place in the world, Britain's presence in the Middle East historically. Many of them have been to Sandhurst, you know, understanding the difference between Sunnis and Shias, asking the intelligent question about why the blockade in Cap, etc. And then eventually you say, I think you probably would quite like to talk about your investments with my fellows from Coots. And I think that's that's what I think is the value added I bring. I'm, I'm not one to talk about investment interest rates or mortgages or the like. But I think in a particular environment as the Middle East is, you wouldn't do it for other parts of the world. Uh, somebody who feels really comfortable uh, engaging, likes the place, hopefully palpably likes the area. And I think, you know, that, that, that's always reflected. You know, if you're beaming out that you're enjoying being in their part of the world, you're speaking their language, you know their background, it, 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 pays, it pays back. And it, 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 in the commercial world, it opens doors. Oh. But it's fun to do anyway. And yeah. it's partly a contribution to the United Kingdom's reputation for being better at this than most yeah. other people. No, I, I think that's beautifully put. And it covers both emotional intelligence and cultural intelligence, this, this reading other people and, and getting into their shoes and what's, it, what's their perspective like and not having the arrogance that they, the, the Western world tends to have, thinking that we need to sort these people out and make them have our democracy. Just like we misunderstand China massively. We think they ought to understand our individualism is, is paramount. They used to go, you know, how selfish are you? You were to understand the culture and the environment and the community. Uh, quick fire questions just before we talk about teams. Uh, top top tip you give about resilience and then brand and then legacy. What would you give a tip on, uh, firstly, resilience? Well, there's no doubt I admire it in other people. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do think it's a terrific, uh, I think it's a terrific uh, quality. Uh, a lot of it's nature and nurture. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think it is extraordinarily important in every walk of life. Um, I, 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 don't, I think we talk about it a lot. Uh, I don't think we have a society that necessarily either understands it properly. It's, mm. it's, uh, I remember having this argument, uh, argument discussion with Nick Horton. Yes. We were, we were absolutely saying, you know, good, high morale is nothing to do with happiness. It's the spirit that sustains in adversity. Mm. Uh, and it's back to you running and you can easily have you know, sat down, but, you know, your own character, your own sense of yourself, your your be a sense of shame, sense of example, sense of pride uh, takes you on and resilience to put up with disappointments, turn them to, uh, I think that goes back to health. I think if you're physically resilient, that is hugely important. And again, you and I and many people, and I say it's not, it's not unique to the military, but there's no doubt about it. People who are tired, people who are unfit, uh, make poor decision makers, make poor leaders. The inspirational side of leadership drops off very fast uh, if a leader proves to be physically not resilient. Very, um, very true. A brand. How about brand? What, um, what have you learned about, um, I don't know if you ever had 360 feedback. It wasn't something that was used widely in the military before, but now is being used extensively. I had a very interesting conversation with a, a former Royal Marine who's gone as a Navy captain to help advise uh, marine amphibious forces in Australia and as they're preparing their ambi- uh, amphibious forces and he said they're using coaching and 360 feedback from all directions which is making a phenomenal difference not to not to judge people it's not part of their grading but it's just to help them be better officers um, w- what have you gained on on any kind of 360 feedback or feedback from people that helps you be a better leader well it's basically going back to um you know, the Adair's balls, as we, you know, <laughs> you know, the team task individual. Uh, and there's no doubt about it. It, 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 
the judgment of getting the balance right between obviously looking after the individual, which is, is a bit, I think, overemphasized in too many areas of modern Western life, uh, over the importance of the team sharing that sense of common purpose and then motivated to deliver on the task. Um, and I think how handling, handling individuals, it used to be, a, it, it definitely used to be a lot easier. Mm. Certain assumptions were made. Certain people arrived with certain assumptions about how they would be treated, what, 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 what their stereotypes up to a point, it, it, it was easier. I find too often, and I look at public, public sector, the move to make sure the individual is cosseted actually destroys the coherence of the team and makes the delivery of the task, which is frankly what these individuals will be paid for in the first place. Increasingly, you know, frankly, you know, prob problematical. I never really did 360. Uh, I was a skeptic, um, I suppose. Uh, uh, you know, I, I've never had any problem because I thought the reporting system was quite interesting. You, you thought perhaps that you, you, know, you had your finger on the pulse enough that people would be honest enough with you, you know, that you'd they're not ask you for criticism so much, but ask you for feedback. But I can see why people might want to formalize it. Yeah. Uh, and I do know issues of toxic leadership, of which I saw very few, but by goodness, they stood out in the army. I think we'd all have one yeah. or two names we could throw them in. Well, it, was, uh, it was very interesting looking back through my old reports, which I got long after I left the army when I asked for the release of them. Uh, and, and it reminded me some of the comments from officers I never remember meeting at all who wrote comments about me. Um, and, and there's that famous one, which was, was true from the old um, reporting line where report written on a female officer, I know him well. Uh, and you sort, of, you sort of think, I don't think they really do. But it, sometimes some people really get people well, but other times what I found very good about the 360, which other other people are now using, and I use with a lot of the leaders, they don't like what they hear sometimes from 20 other people in all different directions, below, above, beside them, but, but they do learn a lot from it. Um, so onto legacy, and then we'll talk about teams and then your favorite book and a top tip. Uh, top, what would be your legacy? What, when you sadly come to, the, to uh, par, pushing up those daisies, yeah. What would what would you like people to say about you, Simon? What would be, in a sentence, the legacy you'd like to be remembered for? Yeah, we're going to say, good bloke. <laughs> Old-fashioned, good bloke stuff. I, I'd, I'd like to think that enough people will say, you know, every, every encounter with Simon Mayle was quite amusing or interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Um, I love there it. is. There's a certain, yeah. I, 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 it's, it's a very difficult one. They, I, you know, yes, within you know, the seriousness of the job he did, I think back to command climate, I like to think that in my own journey, I contributed to other the enjoyment that other people had in their journey. That sounds good I think, to me. I think that's what I'm like. I, I, I like that. The yeah. people would still want to come up and talk to me, even though I've shed all the generals and sirs and, you know, we're bumping along on the clouds together. They'll still, they'll still find the time to make their way over and say hi. Simon, yeah. nice to see you. That's, that's a lovely one. And, and in your time in the military, it's 40 years, and, and then what you've seen in business, um, you've been with some high-performing teams, and you've been with teams that occasionally have individuals who go a little toxic. Hmm. What have you done to address that issue? Because sometimes people avoid it, and the person hangs around for a long time, and it affects morale everywhere. H how would you advise people listening to this in business deal with someone who's toxic? Um, I think we'll get two things I would say, start with. A, back to your own professionalism. It's very difficult to tackle toxic characters if you are not yourself competent. The second one is purpose, where you can actually, you know, remind everybody, the team, you don't need to pick people out, but this is what we're here for. And it's back to we invest in the individual so we form coherent teams so we can deliver this task. And this is what we are all about. And I'm going to invest, and anybody who signs up for that is going to get my support. And anybody who doesn't is going to think. So, and it sort of depends where you are on the team, of course. It's one thing if you're coming in to lead that team, or whether you're a subordinate leader 
working for somebody you don't admire, esteem, trust, find credible, mm. or, or whether you're the person who's drafted in. And quite often, um, and I'm sure Richard would say that, I'm sure we've all done it to an extent ourselves. You know, we draft people in who we think are good at tearing down teams in order to build them up again. Yeah. But it is yeah. difficult. It is difficult. And big characters, uh, and I've seen them, you know, we've seen them in messes. They're quite dominant, but they destroy the command client. They're bullies of yeah. one type or another. Psychological yeah. bullies, physical bullies, sometimes highly talented. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. very bright because, and that's why they're so funny. I don't mean funny. They're clever. They are articulate. Yeah. Yeah. But they're fundamentally very destructive. Uh, and you need good commanders with real enough self-confidence to call them out because they are destroying the capacity to deliver on the task. Yeah, uh, and I have seen that in case of what I call a psychology unsafe. It's a, a culture of bullying and intimidation. Um, and I will say the, the, the film that I can almost, I can hardly bear to watch is, is Tunes of Glory. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I commend it. If you, if you remember John Mills taking over a battalion where the second in command is, is basically, Alec Guinness is a, is, is a completely malign influence on the battalion, really. Yeah. And, and watching the struggle for the heart and soul of that organisation. Mm. Uh, it, 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 it's almost, it, 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 I, I, I really commend it. It's, 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 it's toe-curlingly awful. Yes. Anyway. <laughs> Well, look, that's, that takes us nicely onto the penultimate point, which is the book before we go into the top tip. Um, you and I talked about Bill Slim's Defeat to Victory, which you recommended. Uh, what would be another one that you thought was a very good uh, read on leadership for people? Well, what I really enjoyed, which was very, very accessible, and it was leadership at a very low level, is, is George MacDonald Fraser's book, Quarters Safe Out Here. Funnily enough, same campaign. Mm. Uh, and, of course, he, in that, both talks about very junior leadership. Uh, he was made a lance jack. He didn't, want to, he didn't want to carry responsibility. He'd obviously been identified as intelligent. He talks about the senior old sweats. Uh, he talks about Bill Slim. Uh, he then talks about, because I think he wrote it at the time of the Gulf War, about commanders being asked to expose their fears. You know, were they scared? Were they worried about casualties? And he said, my God, that's the last thing, you know, those was put slogging along, wanted to hear, was our commanders were, were, were harboring doubts or lack of confidence or, or the like. And so he talked about, I think what, you know, uh, John Keegan wrote, The Mask of Command. Mm. Uh, and, the, and the importance for all of them that Bill Slim, who amazingly must be about 47 levels of, above, had imbued through the command climate, through the confidence he gave the 14th Army, something that George MacDonald Fraser was a young, a young man in the, I think it was King's Own Border Regiment, mm-hmm. could pass feel. Uh, and it is, it, it's a remarkable, uh, it's a remarkable tribute. And of course, he went on to be an officer himself and then write some more scarlet books on flash. Yeah, I, lo- I loved the flash. <laughs> no moral compass, no moral <laughs> compass at all. <laughs> no moral compass, absolutely not. No, it was, it was a favourite book I read as a young officer and very influential for me. So, um, Sam, would you uh, finally, just uh, for, for a piece in its own right, would you just introduce yourself, the, the work you're doing and the role you've had in the past and give us your two-minute top tip on leadership? Uh, Lieutenant General Sir Simon Mayle, uh, former cavalryman, uh, commander of the Queen's Green Guards, commander of the 1st uh, Mechanised Brigade, uh, many MOD jobs uh, and a focus, both family, academic and professional, uh, on the Middle East. Uh, and if I was going to give uh, two-minute top tips, uh, these things always come in threes, but I think if one distills down things, I would say my first one would be uh, imbuing, understanding and imbuing everyone around you with a sense of purpose. I think good leaders who can articulate what their core business is uh, and remain very focused on that so that every decision they make, every judgment they make, you can almost second guess by how it links back to purpose. Uh, the second one I would argue in any leader would be professionalism. I believe a grasp, a, a really competent professional leader who knows his business inside out uh, can dispense with many of the other tricks of the trade of leadership uh, and command by just setting an example of sheer competence. 
clearly much better if it is combined with a character that inspires, amuses. Uh, and the third one, I think, in the broader sense is to communicate, communication. You need to communicate that sense of purpose. You need to communicate your own credibility and your own competence. You need to communicate uh, both up, down uh, and around. And the sheer capacity to bring people in to your project through that communication into that purpose and then social professionalism. So purpose, professionalism, communication. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much indeed, Simon, for being on the Inspiring Leadership podcast. It was fabulous. We could have chatted for hours. Uh, I know people will take a wealth of experience from you. And as I mentioned before, Soldier in the Sand, uh, a thoroughly great read, which I very much enjoyed with full of nuggets of history and advice. Thank you very much for your wisdom. Thank you very much, Jonathan. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.